We are going to uh, be covering some more responses to questions that you have submitted. We appreciate those. And tonight, both of our questions have to do with fear. I don't know if this was the same person. I think it may have been who submitted both of these questions, but they, they definitely go along uh, together. So we're going to talk about fear tonight. Fear is one of those biblical words that is an interesting word study if you look at it in the scriptures. Does the Bible say fear is a good thing or does the Bible say fear is a bad thing? The answer is yes. It all depends on the context. It depends on who you are fearing or what you are fearing and why that fear is there and then how you respond to that fear. What actions are going to be the outcome of that fear? All those are related to how the Bible treats the concept of fear. So we're going to try to help distinguish tonight between what is a healthy fear, what we might even call a righteous fear, and what is not. Uh, and then our second question is going to be related to that as a passage in 1 John chapter 4. But let's first explore this question specifically tonight of what does fear and trembling mean? That expression is used a lot in the scriptures and we will get to the trembling part in a moment, but let's talk about the fear first off. Let's start with a healthy fear, a righteous fear, fear of God. Does that mean that we are terrified of God? Well, yes and no. It's more of a healthy respect for God, but there is an element there of understanding how powerful God is. Let's go to Proverbs first off, and I'm going to put some scriptures up here. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of these because there's, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So I've put a few up here tonight. The Proverbs will help us a lot with what the fear of the Lord is. This is one of the themes in Proverbs. I'm not putting every scripture up there tonight from the book of Proverbs that deals with the fear of the Lord. That may be a study you want to do on your own to look at some more of these. But here's a few that you're going to see that help us understand what the fear of the Lord is and why it's a good thing. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord, and again when you see the Lord in all caps, that's God's special name, His unique covenant name with His people, Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. If you go to chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you go back to Proverbs 1, verse 29, it's going to tell us that some hated knowledge. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So the first principle that we learn from Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord should be a natural response to knowledge of who God is. If we are coming to know God, if we are coming to know His person, if we are coming to know His attributes, who God really is, then fearing Him on some level should be the response to that. Knowing God means knowing how big he is, knowing how great he is, how powerful he is. To use maybe a, a word that encompasses all of that. It's a biblical word, even though it's become very much a part of our pop culture uh, over recent decades. How awesome God is. How awesome he is. Fear is a response to the awe of God. Something we don't talk about quite 
enough, how great and powerful God is. Maybe our songs express that more uh, than maybe we even do in our conversation. Uh, you're going to see an example in Jonah. Jonah is on a, a boat in chapter 1, and of course he's trying to get away from God. He, <laughs> I think all along probably knew he can't outrun God, but he's trying to anyway. So he's on this boat that's headed west when he's supposed to be headed east. And when the storm comes up on the water, and everyone besides Jonah is very concerned about this, is trying to figure out what to do, Jonah's asleep. Well, when he is awakened by this, he knows why the sea is so stormy. He knows he's the one at fault. He knows that he has provoked his God, his God Yahweh, uh, because he has not submitted to who God is and how great and how powerful he is. He, he's disobeyed. He's tried to run away from him. And so he says that the solution is going to be, well, y'all have to toss me into this sea. It's the only thing that's going to help. When they do toss him into the sea, they're reluctant to do it. But when they do, the text tells us that then, when they see the sea is calm, then they greatly feared Yahweh. That was not, they did not have a knowledge of Yahweh before that. Not really. Not of how good and awesome and powerful this God really is. But in that moment, they saw that. He's a God who can stir up the sea, but he's also a God who can calm the sea. And the text tells us that in response, they fear God, and that that fear of God then leads them to offer sacrifices to him and make vows to him. Now, I don't know about their faith from that point on, but in that moment, at least, they come to fear God because they come to a knowledge of God, of who God is. So that's our first principle from the Proverbs. Now, here's another principle that we're going to learn from Proverbs that's related to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is another way of expressing humility in our relationship to God. So there's the knowledge of who God is, and it's how we respond to that. But here we also have a couple of passages that speak of this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Now look at the things that are contrasted with the fear of the Lord here. Evil is the broad term here, but here are the things that are, that are more specific that are under that. Pride and arrogance and perverted speech. I hate. Those are expressions of, of a heart that does not fear the Lord. When that heart is prideful, arrogant, and has perverse speech, then that heart is not fearing God because there is not the humility there. There's not the submission to God that is there. If you look at Proverbs 15, verse 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Well, it's basically telling you there is a strong association between the fear of the Lord and humility. And that makes sense. To really fear God is to understand his place in relationship to who you are. If you have the knowledge of how great he is, how big he is, how powerful he is, but also how loving he is, then you are going to order your life in submission to him. He is going to be your Lord. You are going to be actively submitting to him in humility. It's an expression of your posture toward him. That's even expressed a lot of times with some of the prayer postures that you read of in the scriptures. Getting down on your knees, lying flat on the ground. Those are ways of expressing your relationship toward this God who you are worshiping, who you are submitting to. You're placing yourself before him. You are fearing him. It is the proper response to our God. 
And so you see that used in many passages. Fear of God is to acknowledge that you are dependent on him and you place yourself in his hands. It's really an expression of trusting him because of that. Now, the, the Bible talks about some people who fear God. Here's some examples of people who are said specifically to fear God. There's a lot of these. I'll just throw a few of them out here. Abraham. This is a Genesis 22. Abraham has just been willing to offer his son, Isaac. And here's God's response. Now, that I, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. So there is that element of humility, submission, and there is a trust because of that. There's a trust that, that, you know, the book of Hebrews later says that Abraham believed that even if God, even if I take the life of my son, God's powerful enough to raise him up. That's a fear of God. That's understanding how big and wonderful, loving God is. There's a trust there uh, that is part of all of that. So I, I'm, I'm not as comfortable with using the word terror in our response to God, although there are moments in the Bible where people are terrified when God shows up. And maybe initially they should be. But ultimately, fear of God goes well beyond terror. It is more of a trust that God is a good God, that he is looking out for our own, that he's looking out for our interest. Uh, he is not someone looking to smite those who oppose him. He is a loving God. Here's another example. Joseph in his conversations with his brothers, it, the way that he handles that situation, rather than using it as an opportunity for revenge. Again, these brothers sold him into slavery. Now he's in Egypt and, and he has this opportunity with them. He could have done whatever he wanted to. He was in a position of power there. But even though he was in a position of power, he understood that there is a much higher power. So he was going to place himself under God, again, that humility. I'm not going to, to do anything to bring harm, to show anything but love to my brothers. Why? Because I fear God. Because that principle of my heart, that posture of my heart, is going to govern my ethics, the way that I treat the people around me. It's a way to orient your life, fearing God. Job, twice, opening chapters. He's described as a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Once again, fear of God, that posture toward God is going to determine how you carry out your daily life. Job is someone who is shunning evil. There are some examples of that in the book of Job, of how Job is looking out not only for his own interests, but for those of others because he fears God. So all of that is part of a healthy fear of God, a necessary fear of God. Uh, that There are those who do not fear God. Pharaoh is one of them. He's called out in Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, as God is speaking through uh, Moses and Aaron. He says, I know that you still do not fear the Lord God. That's in the midst of those plagues, and that's why there will still be more of them. Now, that should tell us something else. What does the text repeatedly say about Pharaoh's heart? It was hardened. Okay, so a hardened heart does not fear God. Uh, a heart has to be open to responding to God as, as we should. Romans, unless you think this is just language of the New, in the Old Testament, uh, Romans is going to use, it's going to quote from the Psalms. There's a series of quotations there in Romans chapter 3. 
It's in the chapter that's really the same chapter that tells us that there are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the midst of that section, one of the things he's going to quote is talking about all of us. Ultimately, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That means that if, when we are in an unregenerate, sinful state, that hardened heart that has not submitted to God yet, that has not been reborn uh, in Jesus Christ, uh, then we are in that condition of no fear of God before their eyes. So those are some expressions of healthy fear. Now let's talk about unhealthy fear for a moment. Because fear, to some degree, is a natural response. Uh, so, sometimes it's unavoidable. But there are some places where fear is either it's either called out as people are rebuked for their fear or at least they don't handle their fear well. It does not move them toward the proper actions out of that fear. It's an incomplete fear. Let me throw out some examples for you. Classic example of this, the first one in the scriptures, is Adam. Adam, after he and Eve have both taken of the fruit that they were not supposed to, to take of, Adam sensed that God's presence was coming toward him in the garden, and he goes and hides himself. Now, we could say, well, there's a healthy fear because he's acknowledged, he knows who God is, and, and he knows now that he's a sinner. But it doesn't really drive him toward a repentance of wanting to draw him closer toward God. His fear drives him away from God in this instance because whenever God comes and confronts him, uh, he says that I was afraid because I was naked. He's now naked and ashamed of that. It's, it's, there's a, a physical component but also a moral component there. He's been exposed as a sinner and he knows that that's his condition right now. And so he hides himself inadequately, by the way. We think that we can run just like Jonah, thinks that we can get away from God whenever we want to. Ultimately, we're not going to find uh, a place. Where could I go from your spirit, the Psalms tell us. Um, God, God will find us. And Adam tries to, though, because he does not handle that fear as he should. He's, he's afraid because of his sin in this case. But it's not a fear that is driving him towards God. It's a fear that's driving him away from God. There are other places where fear is rebuked in the Bible. One of the great examples is Jesus being on the boat with his 12 closest disciples. They're out on the water and you'll remember a storm comes up on that sea. And he is sleeping, he's resting, and they become very afraid. And they even wake him up because they are terrified of this storm. Now, I don't know about you, storms, I think we can relate to some of that. There's some of the most terrifying things, some natural phenomenon when, when seas get raging. If you've ever been on the water during a thunderstorm, it, it is scary. Uh, we understand that. But they are rebuked because the master, the master of the seas is right there in the boat with them. And they should have no reason to fear in that moment. And that's why they are rebuked because the winds and the waves obey his will. And he shows them that. He demonstrates that. But he calls them out in that moment that that fear in that specific case was a lack of trust in him. It was a lack of faith. 
And so ultimately, that was not a righteous fear. It was an unhealthy fear that they had. Something similar happens whenever Peter is, is walking on the water. Uh, he is fine as long as he's keeping his eyes on Jesus, as long as that trust is there. When he becomes afraid, he starts to sink. And then he takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts to sink in that water. Fear entered in in that context is whenever we... we have the option of, of trusting and we know that there is danger, but the danger exceeds our trust in God. Okay? God wants us to acknowledge that there is real danger, but our trust in him uh, should always be elevated above it. Uh, and that's ultimately what we're talking about with a with healthy fear and what is an unhealthy fear. There are also some examples whenever God shows up with a message of rebuke for someone and and they are terrified, but the terror does not drive them toward repentance. Uh, there are, I'm thinking of Haman in the book of Esther, whenever his plot is exposed in Esther chapter 7, that he wanted to get rid of the Jews. He's terrified of what's going to happen to him. But, but if you read the text, he's terrified of what's going to happen to him because there's going to be punishment for his wrongdoing. Uh, not that he fears God, comes to a healthy fear of God in that instance that drives him to repentance of, oh, I need to reorient my life toward God. No, he's just afraid for his his own skin. That's an unhealthy fear. Uh, same thing, Daniel chapter 5. We've been saying Daniel on Wednesday nights. And, and the king there um, that has the, has the feast, Belshazzar, and then that hand comes up and starts writing on the wall, and he's terrified. I mean, he's, he is frozen in fear in that moment, and yet it doesn't drive him to repentance either. He's just scared of what might happen uh, to him and to all these things that he has. So that those are some examples of fear that is unhealthy, or it's at least incomplete. If God shows up and we're terrified, but, it's, but it, it drives us to respond to, okay, he's real, and I need to reorient my life and submit to him, then that is the proper response of fearing the Lord. If it drives us away from him, if we allow that it to, drives us to, to go farther into isolation or just to become more protective of ourselves or, or in many other ways, then fear, we have not let fear do what it is supposed to do with us. The Bible also speaks of some physical manifestations of fear. And this is coming back to our idea of fear and trembling. Now there's a whole spectrum of ways that we can respond to fear. And I think the, this would be, I think if we were doing a, uh, if a psychiatrist was looking or a psychologist was looking through the scriptures, then what they would know about what we know about the psychology of fear would match with a lot of what we see in the scriptures. Uh, these things can happen on one end of the spectrum. Uh, there is something like paralysis that can happen when you are so terrified, uh, where you are immobile. Sometimes in the Bible, biblical text, people even faint because of this. They pass out because of their, their anxiety uh, due to that fear. So there is the idea of paralysis. You know that expression, I've already been using it tonight, being frozen with fear. That, that can happen where you feel like you can't even move at all. On the other end of the spectrum, rather than no movement at all, is too much movement as a response to this. It's unnatural tremor or trembling that can happen with that. And most of us have felt that at some point. If you've been nervous about anything, if you've been anxious about something, you will often feel uh, a tremor 
that comes on you. Maybe even something more than that. There is a trembling that can happen as a physical manifestation of, of fear. And I've given you some, some scriptures there just for you to see that these manifestations on both ends of the spectrum come up many times, but even more so, the idea of trembling connected with fear. Now let's look specifically at three of these texts from the New Testament to see how fear and trembling are connected together and are a good thing, how they are connected to a healthy fear of the Lord. Three places uh, that we're going to spend just a moment about before we move on to the last question of where, why fear and trembling is something that we are told to do. And that was the original question here. I know that we've been bringing some other things into this about fear. But the original question was, what, is, what does fear and trembling mean? And we're told to, in a sense, that that's a good thing. So what do we mean by that? Here's one of them. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Here's what's just happened in Mark 16. Jesus has died. Uh, there are a group of ladies who have already been taking care of his tomb. And now they are coming back on a Sunday morning to check that tomb and they find that a stone has been rolled away and an angel speaks to them and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is slowly sinking in with them. Uh, now the reaction, the first reaction here is they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling is what's used there in Mark 16. Trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, now, they will go on and talk to others. They will share their story. But initially, there is a fear and trembling that is here. Now, we say, well, is that a good thing? Well, I think it's a natural response in this case. And it is because they have had an encounter with an angel. They realize that... Their Lord, whose body was in this tomb, is no longer there. And they are having an experience of the knowledge of God and how big and powerful and wonderful God is. That someone who is dead could rise from the dead. And that is leading them to a response of fear and trembling of this great God. Uh, and so it's a natural response and it's a good response. Now, if they had never told anyone this, uh, then, then maybe we wouldn't say that it is. But uh, th this, this is a natural fear of how awesome God is in this moment. Here's another context where the Bible is going to use fear and trembling as a good thing. This is Paul. If Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
Now notice here how Paul is bringing in this language of fear and trembling. The context here is probably some criticism that Paul may have received. There's more evidence of that in the second book that he writes to the Corinthians. But some criticism for his style, for his rhetorical style whenever he would, would speak. And some used a, a different style and maybe accused Paul of being weak in his presence. Maybe not having the polished rhetorical skills that some of the other people expected of those who would get up and deliver a message. Paul is contrasting something that may be polished. It may come across as powerful, but actually ends up just elevating the speaker rather than the God who should be behind the message. He's saying that I wanted to make sure that my preaching did not fall into that. It doesn't mean that I didn't want it to be persuasive, that I didn't want it to be powerful, but I wanted to use words and use a style for you to know that this was not my power and it was not my skill. This was God's power to put the focus on the God and not on the messenger. And so he says here, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He is expressing that I tried to come with an attitude of humility that would put the focus on who God is and on the power of his work uh, and not on my wisdom, my skill, my own strength, the power of my presence, my voice, any of that stuff. Uh, it's, this is, these are passages very much we preachers need to spend time in to make sure we're doing everything that we can to glorify God in our preaching and not try to, to point to ourselves a, as having uh, the, the power. And so Paul is using that expression there, fear and trembling. It's a, it's a humble approach, submitting to God and putting the focus on God. Here's another one where he's going to use fear and trembling. He's talking to all of us here. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The context here is a submission to God's work within us when it comes to the application of our salvation. God saved us, but we have the responsibility of allowing his salvation to be worked out into everything that we do, into all that we are. And so we do that with fear and with trembling. We know it is God who is the one at work within us. His will his pleasure. We submit to that. So again, fear and trembling is an expression of humility, of understanding. Jesus is our Lord. Okay, that's the, right before this in Philippians 2. It's expression about God is highly exalted Jesus so that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess before him. And so that's what fear and trembling means. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord, submitting your life to him, orienting your life around that, knowing how awesome God is, respecting that, humbly submitting to him. That's what fear and trembling means, and that's why the way it's used in the Bible is usually in a healthy way, as a good way, in a necessary way for God's people. Now the second question is going to be related to this. We're not spending as much time on this one. But since we do fear God, we've established that. Explain 1 John chapter 4, 
verse 17 through 19. Now, I'm going to put the text of that up here. I'm actually going to back up to verse 16 because I think it may help us a little bit with this question tonight. Let me read that uh, for you. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves penalty. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. When I say penalty or punishment there, your translation may have one of those. We love because he first loved us. Now let's consider a few things here. The first thing you always want to consider when you're looking at, at a teaching in the scriptures, what is the context? What is the surrounding message around this? If you look at 1 John chapter 4, the main thrust of this passage is on love. Ultimately, you know, when we think of what is the love chapter of the Bible, we go to 1 Corinthians 13, you could, and rightly so, but you could say just as much 1 John chapter 4 is a chapter of love. Uh, this is a chapter that really establishes that God first loved us, so he is the source of love. In fact, God is love, is at the heart of this passage. What the main point of this passage is, is that in response to God and his love, we are to love God in return, and we are to love others around us that we see with that same love that we are receiving from God. Now, that should match up with what Jesus tells us are the two greatest commandments. Love God with everything that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. 1 John chapter 4 goes along with that. So whatever fear is this message is talking about, it has to fit in with that overall message. I think that's going to help us a little bit here. So the type of fear, we've already established that not all fear is wrong. Some fear is, is healthy and it's necessary. Fearing God ultimately is. That's not what he's talking about here when he talks about how there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves penalty. This is not talking about the, the fear, the good fear that we've been talking about so far tonight. I'm convinced that the type of fear that this speaks of, that expression there, fear, this is fear that involves penalty, fear that involves punishment. And this is the one that, that this type of fear is representative of one who has not been perfected in love. We might say there that this is a fear of undesired outcomes, a fear of the what if. That type of fear ultimately is crippling. It will prevent you first from loving God as you should and from loving your neighbor as yourself. Now let me demonstrate what I mean by that. It will prevent you from trusting God as your loving father. There's some language here about the day of judgment and about having confidence in that day. If you go through your whole life with an unhealthy fear of that day and of who God is, if you distort the picture of God in your mind, 
and you get to that idea that you are so tied to your own guilt that how could God ever love me? That is a crippling fear. It is a crippling fear that will distort your view of God and you will not see him as a God of love. You will be so tied to that, it will prevent you from trusting in the God of love and ultimately will prevent you from a healthy fear of that God. So that's one way that this could cripple you. But I'm convinced that since this passage speaks of us loving God in return, but also loving those around us as a response to God's love. This type of fear of penalty, of punishment, of undesired outcome, it will cripple you and will prevent you from loving the people around you too. Now how does that play out? Well, it may prevent you from making yourself vulnerable to others in love. To get involved with a marriage is putting yourself in a position of vulnerability. That person could break your heart. To have children is to put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Those children will upset you at times. They will break your heart at times. Uh, to, to put yourself out there in love is to make yourself vulnerable. You may be afraid to love people because you're afraid of them physically harming you, financially harming you, emotionally harming you if you get attached to them. It will be a crippling kind of love. I mean, it will be a crippling kind of fear. And it will prevent you from being perfected or being complete in your love, the type of love that God has for us. If that's how you go through life and you live your life playing the what-if scenarios of what, what, what could this lead to if I get involved with this person, if I am seeking this, if that's how you live your life, and I'm convinced that so much of the problems we see in the, in the world around us is, are based on unhealthy fear of people. Racism can be tied to that. Um, uh, other, other things can certainly be tied to that. Remember this. God loved us enough to make himself completely vulnerable. Did he not? Born as a human, not only a human, a human baby, helpless baby. He made himself that way for us. He was not afraid to put himself in harm's way. You, you look back at verse 17 of this section here. As he is, so also are we in this world. That's the type of love we are called to imitate. And it is a love that is not governed by worldly fear. It is a love that casts out that type of fear because we trust in our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight that you are our God. May we bow before you in humble response to how big and powerful 
and wonderful and loving that you are. May our hearts always have a posture of fearing you and trembling before you, but trusting you all the while. Father, we pray that your love will be perfected in us, that it will drive out unhealthy fear, that it will lead us to a greater love of you and a greater love of the people around us. We ask this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, if you are struggling with anything in your life, we're going to sing a song of invitation, of encouragement to you for something you'd like to share uh, that has been on your heart tonight. If you'd like to commit yourself to a deeper, more trusting fear of your God and to move away from the unhealthy fears of the world, then let that be known tonight to us. We can pray about that with you. If you've not submitted your life to Jesus Christ and, and been washed in his blood, uh, given yourself to him to be baptized into him for the remission of, of sins by faith in the working of God, if you need to do that tonight, if you need to make that fear of God known in your submission to him to want to be a part of Jesus Christ, then please do that tonight. If you have any need, please come as together we stand and as we sing.